0: I did an unusual thing last week. I completely forgot it was the first week of the month of May. And it's usually in the first week of the month we have an open forum sort of format. So I say open forum. It's interesting. I saw on YouTube it came up, this documentary on uh, Mr. Camping's uh, prophecy back in the day. You know He used to host what was called the Open Forum Show, which is what made me think of it. And uh, it showed, the I guess it was the 21st of May... Uh, so that's going to be, um, it was uh, 21 20 years ago? No. Uh, well, I think it was 2012, so about 11 years ago, that he had said that the world would end. And they were sending out from family radio in Alameda, California, trucks all around the country. I saw one in Middletown, and it had May 21st, Judgment Day. <laughs> and, and what it did was it, it chronicled a, a number of his followers. In their expectation for the day. So, like you had uh, two weeks before, and then seven days before the activities they were doing and preparing for it. Then you had, you know, a couple days before, the day before. And just the cognitive dissonance that these people experience when they had this high measure of expectation. Judgment Day, world's coming to an end. Two in the morning, there's going to be earthquakes starting in the Pacific, and it's going to roll all, remember that stuff? All through the country, and it didn't happen, and uh, uh, you know, we could chuckle at it, but those people were absolutely devastated, and um, had to find some kind of explanation. It was an incredible uh, reminder of what took place uh, 11 years ago now, that whole family radio thing. Yes? I can remember that and you had an encounter with the person so was the prior day, and you said, I'd like to speak to you tomorrow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wasn't going to argue with him <laughs> before the fact. I said, I'll discuss it with you afterwards and explain to you why it was wrong. <laughs> that was basically the... The, the, the perspective I had. And what Mr. Camping did when uh, the cameras followed him at the family radio, I think it was two days after the fact, he just turned around and he said, um, I'm sorry, no interviews, no interviews. Uh, he says, uh, I have a lot of thinking to do. <laughs> and then it was like the next Sunday he came before his group of people that met in Alameda at the, the church. I didn't even call it, they didn't call it a church, but they met on Sundays. And he began then to promote the fact that uh, They had uh, calculated incorrectly, and uh, the new day for judgment was October the 21st. So (laughs) we are just uh, six months off, and now we had it all right. You know, the marvelous thing about, the thing that causes me to marvel about that is the absolute certainty that these people have, that they are absolutely right, and there's not a sliver of possibility in the world that they could ever be wrong. And then it comes about that they're wrong. I mean, tremendous devastation, so oh, very, very uh, sad and discouraging. Um, anyways, so we do have an open forum. We utilize the name, and that was a program in which people would just call up and ask questions. You don't have to call up, just you're here. You can ask a question, and um, I didn't do it last week, so I'm going to give you an opportunity this week, if you have a question, to raise it. We have some folks that are not with us this morning, and So I don't mind putting off Romans to next week. They would have continuity, but I'll go ahead with Romans if there are no questions. So I'll throw it open to you. Anybody have a question that you've been pondering, something that you encountered in conversations with other people, something you came across in your Bibles that was a head-scratcher and perplexing, and you say, next time we have open forum, I'm going to ask Pastor Gordon that question. So anybody prepared or not prepared or off the cuff have a question? If not, we're going back to Romans, okay? Well, don't say it to give you a chance. Romans chapter 7. Now we come into the 7th chapter of Romans, of course, that's the famous chapter that deals with um, the whole matter of this principle within us that keeps us from doing the things that we want to do. The things that as God's people we desire to do, we find evil is present with us. And so that we end up doing nothing unto perfection. We do nothing the way that we want to do it. And, you know, we all experience this. We experience this at the New Year when we have resolutions. We're going to read our Bibles every day. We're going to pray every day. We're going to do this every day. And then by uh, January the 3rd, we've struck out. We've messed up. We've not done it. And um, we forget those resolves that we've made. Well, um, in all manner of things, that seems to be true. It's just our, our common experience that we don't do anything as we would do it. And uh, Paul does give something of an explanation for this, but he does it in a way that is addressing the question of what place the law has in the lives of believers. Again, think about Christianity really being based upon the Old Testament. The chief thing or chief event that the Jews look to with respect to their ancestral religion is that the law was received on Mount Sinai. It's so important to the Jewish mind that they were the recipients of the law, that being raised in a Jewish family and being sent off to religious education, I had my teachers actually teach me in uh, religious education, a Hebrew instruction, that God had offered to Abraham his law. Well, of course, the law was not given to Abraham, the law came. Four hundred and thirty years later, according to what Paul says, it came later, and yet in their minds, that's so significant. And and in fact, the law, uh, as they understand it, is is almost something of eternal duration. It's kind of the, you know, it's how the the Muslims look at the Quran as an eternal book that uh, you know we may have it in the Arabic language, but exists eternally somehow, somewhere, uh, after some fashion. So the zeal for the law, the um, reverence for the law uh, the sense of the centrality and the significance of the law to the mind of the Jew um, I mean, it really parallels that, that uh, sort of thing you see in other religions it's the place we give to Jesus that they would give to the law the place of central faith and, and trust and confidence and hope uh, Paul mentions in, in this letter you who are a Jew and you boast in the law Christians boast in what? Paul says, God forbid that I should boast or glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We boast in Christ, and the the Jews boast in the law. But um, the law was given by God. It was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and it does have a place of importance. And in the Christian understanding of redemption, the law does not, is, is, is not just simply jettisoned. It's not just simply, well, that's Old Testament, has nothing to say to us as New Testament believers. Because the law, particularly the part of the law that was spoken by God to Israel on Mount Sinai, we call it the Ten, the Ten Commandments. The Bible itself calls it the Ten Words. Sometimes it's called the Testimony. It's God himself speaking with that voice from heaven. You all saw it. Um, I don't know whose voice it was they did on the Ten Commandments, the C.B. DeMille movie, but somebody's voice, well, that was a voice that was audible, that was heard, uh, articulating those ten words. And then later, as Moses went up to Sinai, it was put on tablets of stone, written by the very finger of God, very impressive. way in which they did that uh, in C.B. DeMille's movie, I imagine if they did it today with computer graphics, it would be even more astounding to see but imagine if you were there, actually witnessing these events that the Bible testifies concerning anyway um, but the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai was given to a redeemed people and this the importance of understanding it they were already redeemed from Egyptian bondage they were slaves in Egypt and God brought them out God delivered them, led them to the sea, provided them uh, manna from heaven, provided with them blessings in in, in abundance. He uses the language in um, Exodus 19, before the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20, he says I brought you on eagles' wings to myself. Um, God's power Delivered them and he brought them to himself. And so there's a prior commitment and relationship that God had with this people and this people would have with their God before God said, Here's the commandments, keep them. Um, He said, uh, You know, I'm going to give you my law, these are commandments you are to keep, and you'll be my people and I will be your God. But there was already a pre, pre existing relationship. And in fact, when the law is given on Mount Sinai, you, you look at uh, Exodus chapter 20, the very ways in which the law is framed. Um, Exodus 20, let's just turn to the passage. It says that God spoke all these words saying. And what's the first thing God says? Well, he does not say, "Thou shalt do this or not do this." He says, "I am the Lord your God." It's a statement of God's being. I am Yahweh your God. And I am Yah- Yahweh your God who has acted on your behalf, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's the preface to the commandments. That's the beginning. The commandments begin with a relationship already existing. The commandments begin with an act of redemption. God's redeemed them. God's brought them to himself. And then he says, On the basis of who I am, and on the basis of what I've done for you, here's what you are to do. So you see that there's a pre-existing relationship and commitment and redemption that's already been provided for them. And in a real sense, Christians need to understand the law in that way. That the law can't redeem us. There could have been no law that could have been given to Israel that would have brought them out of Egyptian bondage. They were in slavery. And Pharaoh had control. He had his armies, he had his chariots, he had the power of death over them. And there was nothing that uh, the law could do that would have changed that. Because as soon as Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Here's a law from God. Hey Pharaoh, here's a law from God. Let my people go. (laughs) And Pharaoh's response is, who's Yahweh that I should hear his voice? He's not going to obey the voice of God no commandment that God would give Pharaoh would be a commandment that he would obey he had to be broken he had to be brought into submission there had to be the plagues that was brought upon the Egyptians there had to be the lives of the firstborn taken there had to be the um, opening of the sea and Israel delivered and there had to be the crashing down of the sea on the armies of Pharaoh so there had to be redemption there had to be redemption And in a similar way, you and I who are slaves to sin and we're slaves to our own passions and desires and we are under captivity to the world, the flesh, and the devil. When God comes to us, he doesn't just say, well, here's a bunch of commandments you to keep to get out of the fix you're in. Because all the law in the world is not going to help us get out of our bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin. We serve sin. Sin says, serve me, and we say, yeah, right, here I am. I'm your servant. It says, give me your tongue to lie, and we give our tongues willingly, and we lie. We tell lies. We look upon things that are inside our hearts to lust, coveting other people's property, coveting other people's wives, uh, all manner of evil that we are uh, coveting other, uh, other people's lives, even so far as to wish death upon people. That's in our hearts. It's in our minds and all the commandments in the world are not going to cause that to stop. In fact Paul's going to argue that those commandments actually stir up desire. they stir up the desire to do evil. Tell your kids don't do this and they're going to want to do it. the old movies we used to see when people would be in homes and the propriety would say, don't go into that room. You know they're going into the room. As soon as the commandment's there, there's going to be that curiosity that is spurred to say, hmm, I wonder why you don't want me to go into that room. Oh, I'm going in that room. And usually that's where the trouble begins in the film. But um, that's what law does. Law stirs up uh, a propensity to want to disobey it. Who are you to tell me what to do? And why are you telling me not to do that? There must be pleasure in that. You know, the, the... People would say that uh, when they were trying to have a, a system to ban certain uh, books or certain music, is they say, well, as soon as you ban it, people can read it. As soon as you ban it, people can want to go out and buy it. As soon as you say you can't, people going to want to do it. So I think there's something to that psychologically. And Paul seizes upon that. That seems to be what Paul says is a reality: that uh, sin stirs up our our passions. But at any rate, the point of it is sin can't redeem, it can't deliver, it can't change our hearts, it can't make us different. It can just pre- it can just prescribe. It can say, this is what you must do. And uh, it doesn't help us do it, not in the least. And so Paul's argued out that um, it's Christ who is the way in which life comes. It's the way in which justification comes. We're made right with God through faith in the Lord Jesus. And... Um, it brings us out of that bondage we are to sin by nature having that nature of sin communicated to us as part of a fallen race having died in Adam we're made alive now in in, in Jesus and uh, that's, th- those are the options, you're either dead in Adam or you're alive in Christ and again the Jews might say well look we got this law that can kind of help us out of this situation and Paul says no The law doesn't help us out of the situation, but the law is not a nothing. The law has meaning and purpose and function in the lives of believers. And that's what he's addressing in this 7th chapter of Romans, the relationship that believers have to the law of God. And let's just read this first section, um, the first six verses, and we'll begin with this. He says... And remember, he's out of a context of saying you've been made free from sin, you become servants to God, you have your fruit unto sanctification, the end of it all is eternal life. That's in chapter 6, 22. The wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we have this free gift given to us from God. We have this fruit unto sanctification, we have this deliverance from sin. Um, And then... And it's something that only Christ can give. The law can't do this. The law can't liberate us. Um, So Paul goes on to say, Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking, he says, kind of a parenthetical statement I'm speaking to those who know the law. Probably there he's saying, You know the Old Testament. You know what the Bible says. And law, oftentimes in the Old Testament, means instruction. Law means instruction. So he's saying that you know the instruction. You know the teaching of the the Bible. You know the teaching of the Old Testament law. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. You you die, all the tax laws don't pertain to you any longer. You don't have to pay taxes once you're dead. You don't have to obey the speed laws once you're dead. (laughs) Once you're dead, nothing of human law pertains to you. And um, once we're dead, even the law of God, it it governs the living. It governs people in this life, in our relationships to other people. Um, And he illustrates, for a married woman, and again, it's an illustration. Paul is not expressing here a law that governs marriage and divorce because that's his theme. So he's not giving us a complete statement about marriage and divorce and all of the ins and outs about the marriage relationship. People run to Romans chapter 7 as the beginning of their instruction about marriage and divorce and say, look, Paul says a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. She has to die in order for any kind of dissolution of the marriage to take place. Well, you know, that's fine. But this is Paul's illustration. This is not Paul's instruction about marriage and divorce. There you're going to have to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he does speak about desertion of the marriage as being the grounds for the dissolution of the marriage. If somebody deserts the marriage, he says the believing party is not bound to the marriage. They're gone. They've absconded. And one of the elements of marriage is that you cleave to each other. And so if somebody tears the relationship apart and says, bye, I'm out of here, then that marriage no longer exists. It dissolves. It is something that uh, gives the right for the believing party who's been victimized by that desertion. to say, well, okay, now that person is gone and and now I, I have a heart to marry, a desire for companionship. They're free to do it. They're free to do it. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 7. And there's other statements that Jesus makes about fornication, sexual immorality, also being a grounds for the dissolution of the marriage. So you don't take an illustration that Paul's giving. It's meant to illustrate his point here. It's not meant to give a full, orbed definition of marriage. So you don't start there. It's only an illustration. But the illustration says... If you're married, you're bound to the relationship until a death takes place. Until a death take, takes place. If the husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. A death must take place. You've got to give the death certificate in order for, to collect the insurance. <laughs> You've got to have a death certificate in order to contract another marriage. Um, Paul says you're released from the law that binds you to that person. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. She just goes and shacks up with someone else while her husband's still alive, then she's an adulteress. But if the husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So she's free to marry another once he dies. Once he dies, once the death takes place, she's free to contract a new marriage. And Paul says it's in the same way. He says, likewise, my brothers, this pertains to our relationship uh, to God through Christ, you've died to the law. A, in other words, a death has taken place through the body of Christ. Well, it's actually the body of Christ that died, but we've died in him. Remember chapter 6? He says, you have been baptized into Christ. You've been baptized into his death. You've been buried with him. You've been raised with him in unison of life. You've been joined to Christ in a death like his. And so in so doing, you've died to the law through the body of Christ. And you've died to the law, a death's taken place. Now, you've not died, but you've died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul's saying, a, new, a death has taken place so that you be, might, might, might be joined not to the law, but to the Christ who delivered you from the law. The Christ whose death and resurrection has freed you from slavery to your sins and slavery to the law. Now he's your husband. Law is not your husband any longer. Law was your husband. But now Christ is your husband that you may bear fruit for God. Now think of it in this way. If the relationship we had to the law was that of marriage, we were joined to the law. This the law said: you shall, shall, shall not, you shall you know, worship the Lord and Him alone. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not do this and that, and you shall do these other things. You shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Um, and you've not done it. You've just defied the law. But the law is still your husband. You're married to him, and you are bound to obey him. And you go and you ask your husband for help. I mean, isn't that what we do in marriages? You ask for help, right? You don't do it alone. Part of marriage is that you have companionship and you work together on common projects. When... uh, I think my wife has some things she wants to move over to the dump she's called everybody she can think of when everyone else was busy she said honey could you help me so I'm the last one she finds when my brother's not available and her son's not available and the neighbors are not available and, uh, then she calls on me and I'm always willing to help I'm always willing to help I guess that my competency to help is not that great but I try to help but ask the law to help and what does the law say? The law says, that's not what I'm for. I'm not to help you. I'm to command you. The law just says, I'm to tell you what to do. I'm not to help you. Do, I can't help you to do it. But now you've died to the law, through the body of Christ, that you should be joined to another. So now you've got a new husband. new husband's in town. His name is Jesus. And now the question is, does Jesus still ask us to be law keepers? Well, actually, you're going to see that he does. In, in chapter 8, he's, he says, that the righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. There's a standard of righteousness that the law contains that God desires us to embody. That we would actually be those who love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But left to ourselves, is that something we're up for? Is that something we're ready to do? Is that something that we're capable of doing in and of ourselves? Well, it's great. We're married to someone who we can ask for help. And we turn to Jesus, and we say, Jesus, I'm weak. Will you be my helper? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm I'm here for. That's exactly my relationship to you, is a husband to actively help you, and to give you of myself to enable you to do all things through him who strengthens you. So that's what Paul's saying. He's saying we've been joined now to Jesus so that we might bear fruit to God because Jesus is the one who helps us to bear fruit to God. Yes, Barbara.
1: I have a question on how marriage in the New Testament reflects in the Old Testament because I'm reading Genesis right now. Okay. What constituted marriage back in the Old Testament Um since they had more than one wife. Okay. Right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So, um, I'm not really sure if it has anything to do with what we're talking about right now, but I I can't make a correlation as to...
0: Yeah. Well, let me help you a bit on this this subject. Um, It's in Matthew 19 that Jesus, I think, gives us the solution to that whole business of polygamy it took place in the Old Testament but it's in the context of divorce you know the original institution of marriage was in Genesis 2 the Garden of Eden where God brings Eve to Adam and says for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother cleave to his wife and the two shall be made one or two shall be made one flesh um Marriage means you've left the old family relationship to start your own family. You left father and mother, that's the former relationship that you grew up in. We're going to look this morning in the morning worship at Anna, Anna of Asher. And Anna of Asher, it's interesting, it tells us she was married for seven years. And then it tells us that she lived 84 years, but we're not exactly sure. It depends on the reading of the Bible you have. In the original, I think the idea really is not that the whole, her entire age was 84, but from the time that she entered widowhood, seven years, after her, seven years after her marriage. She was married seven years. Her husband died. She's a widow now. 84 years, she's a widow. 84 years. When did she get married? Well, the fact that you have seven expressing the length of her marriage, and 84, which is 7 times 12, right? There's a multiple of 7. The likelihood is that Luke is presenting us with a life well-lived in which he probably got married at age 14, which is very usual in the ancient world that uh, marriage was contracted for a woman around the age of 14, likely Mary, the mother of our Lord, was married at an age comparable to age 14. So she got married at age 14 being raised in her family. Fanuel, we're told, was her father. We're not told who her mother was, but she's raised in a family who is looking to prepare for marriage. Um, Fiddle on the roof. <laughs> the song tradition. The song tradition. Um, you have the young man saying that At six, I started Hebrew school. At ten, I learned a trade. I hear they've picked a bride for me. I hope she's pretty. And the next line is, tradition, tradition, right? (laughs) And then you have the young women who start to say, so the end of the whole thing, they picked a bride for me. I hope she's pretty. So you grow up, you learn Hebrew school, you learn a trade, and it's all to get married. I hear they picked a bride for me. I hope she's pretty. And then when the girls come on, raised in this environment, it's who does mama teach to mend and tend and fix? Preparing her to marry whoever papa picks. The daughter, or the daughter. Tradition. <laughs> this is the next slide. So, she's being prepared for marriage. And in a Jewish family, that would be what how it would be. For this cause, a man... Leaves father and mother, is joined to the wife that Papa picked, <laughs> then these sense of arranged marriages with the parents choosing the bride or bringing the bride together, and then they form their own family. They cleave to one another. That's a commitment to one another. And then that commitment is consummated in the sexual bond and a life of unity. Forsaking all others, I cleave only to you. Um, that's marriage, biblically speaking. That's what constitutes marriage. Leaving, cleaving, and two being made one. Okay? Now, that should be the end of the story. That every marriage should consummate in a lifelong union that's only disrupted by death. Um, Jesus says, what God's joined together would no man put asunder. It should be not our interest, our desire to do anything to put asunder the marriage relationship, to tear it apart. But the reality is, in a sinful world, marriages get torn apart. They get torn apart by the ways in which we can, we can defy and deny and undermine marriage itself, because if marriage is a leaving and a cleaving and a two-one exclusive relationship. Then, what is it that would render a marriage non-void? It's if the, one of the parties says, "I don't want to be party to this marriage any no longer. Bye, bye," and they leave. There can't be a marriage when one of the parties has left, can there? You leave, father, and mother. You cleave. You don't leave. You cleave. You hang together. You hold together. You don't. You don't quit. God, as we were told in marriage counseling when we were married, God's put a latch on the back door. Says that's it. <laughs> you know, there's no back door to run out of. You you got to work through your troubles. Work through your problems. You got to pray together. You got to stay together. So. Um, that's one of the reasons, Paul says, if one of the parties leaves, the other party is not bound. That's not something you want. It's not something you desire. It's not something you expect. It's not something you work towards. But you can, because of sin, be the victim of somebody ruining the marriage, dissolving the marriage by leaving a relationship in which cleaving is a central component. Right? And then there is this matter of adultery. And of course, adultery. We use the term adulterate, "adulterate." You can you can spoil something by adulterating it. You know, you can take your coffee and instead of putting sugar, you can put salt in it, and you pretty much adulterate your coffee because you can't drink it. It's not going to be used for what you've hoped to see, see it used for. It's it's impu- it's it's polluted. It's impure. You, 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 that's just a way in which we speak about waste pure things get adulterated. With the purity of marriage, can be adulterated by sexual impurity. When sexual impurity comes, the two-one flesh relationship is is attacked. It's vitiated, is to use a big word. It, there's an attack made against the marriage relationship. And so that's why Jesus says in that case also, there is a warrant for divorce. But Jesus says that Moses, who the Jews were saying commanded us to give a bill of divorcement. And they're quoting Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 uh, gives some statement about um, if a man marries and finds some impurity in his wife, and it doesn't define what that impurity is. And the rabbis would argue, what is the impurity? Is it sexual impurity? Is it some other kind of impurity? Is it some physical deformity? Well, what is it that he finds in her? But uh, it then tells her that uh, if he puts her away, gives her a bill of divorcement, he can't get her back. He can't get her back. So that it's, it, the, the, you, know, you just can't take a woman, marry her, throw her out, and then expect, well, I'm going to ask her to come back next week. No, once, you, once she's out, she's out. And you go and marry someone else, you can't go back to that first wife. And it's something that was meant to kind of... Um, make serious in the mind of the guy looking to put a wife away that this is for good this is like forever so be careful what are you doing you may have regrets tomorrow and if she goes and married someone else or that's it she's gone so it's meant to uh, inhibit to restrain someone from doing something wrong so that's what the law is about it's not a command to do it Moses doesn't say divorce your wife he's saying if you do it this is what you got to do And this is what you can't do once that's done. So it puts restraint upon the man for putting his wife away. And so when Jesus comments upon it in Matthew 19, he said Moses permitted it, not commanded it. He said he permitted this for the hardness of your hearts. For the hardness of your hearts. He gave an allowance. He gave a permission. He gave... uh, leave for this to be done simply because people are who they are. They're sinful, they're self-absorbed, they're self-seeking, they're wicked. And, you know, sometimes it's better, you know, you know we hear all these stories about the, the 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 man who killed his wife or the woman that poisoned her husband. Usually you know, women poison, men shoot or, or, or stab. Horrific things that go on in the world. You know, you it's Partners in human relationships that kill one another, and you say, "Why didn't you just divorce them?" Well, that's exactly what God's doing. He's saying, "For the hardness of your heart, for murdering the woman, you know, put her away." But here's the terms of which this is to be done. So it's for the, it's it's an irregular situation. It's not what God designed it to be. And Jesus said from the beginning, it was not so. And He goes back to the Garden of Eden. And he says that he that made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause let a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall be made one. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Those words are Jesus' words commenting upon marriage, that marriage is designed to be permanent. So anything that you see that's irregular in marriage, that's not heterosexual, that's not exclusive, that's not um... You know this whole business is about what do you what do you make of these marriages of men marrying men? Well, as a Christian, I say, from the beginning, it was not so. I would say it's 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 unusual. It's not the God's intended design. in so far as the law recognizes it, you know if I was a, you remember the woman in Kentucky that wouldn't issue the marriage license? I'd have no problem issuing the marriage license once it was made legal. I mean, a lot of things happen in the world that's irregular. A lot of things happen in the world that was not what was designed. Divorce was not God's design, yet divorce happens in the world. Polygamy is not God's design, and yet it happens in the world.
1: So how did it begin in the, uh, Genesis? What's that? How did it begin, polygamy, in Genesis?
0: Um, I think the first one that you read isn't it Abraham? oh no 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 no! it was uh, the seventh descendant from Cain Lamech um, yeah pilgrimage was first found not in the line of Seth where they called on the name of the Lord this, turn to Genesis 4 when the account is given of the succeeding generations after Adam and Eve you know you had the the son Abel whom Cain slew and then we read that Adam knew his wife again this is in verse 25 of chapter 4 Adam knew his wife again in sexual relations with Eve she bore a son called his name Seth for she said God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him and to Seth also was born a son called his name Enosh and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord and then in chapter 5 you have the descendants of Adam through, through Seth and Enosh in which you had people who walked with God and Enoch walked with God I think that's seventh, seventh generation down, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him he seemed to get to glory with avoiding death itself And um, then you have Noah who also is said to have walked with God, a righteous man Um. So the seventh from Seth was this man who walked with God. And I think it's the seventh from Enoch. Uh, The seventh from Cain. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 4 has the descendants of Cain. See what happened to the descendants of Seth? They're they're the ones that worshipped. They're the ones that prayed. They're the ones that called upon the name of the Lord. They're the ones that walked with God. But in verse uh, 17 it says Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. Uh, when he built a city, so cities came from that, <laughs> the fallen line of Cain, the Cainites, built a city. That wasn't a big city, it was, you know, a bunch of places where people dwelt together. Called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch, and to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael, fathered Lamech. Maybe that's not seven. Anyway, it's like four, maybe down Lamech took two wives. (laughs) There it is. That's where polygamy began. It began with uh, this guy Lamech. And not only did he take two wives, not only did polygamy begin there, but it says that um, uh, Lamech said to his wives in verse 23, Aden hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He's he's saying, look, I've exceeded my my great-great-grandfather, Cain, in an act of violence. And I'm proud about it. I'm boasting about it. Wives, look at what I've done. Look at the murders I've committed. Maybe one man. It's hard to know. Is killing a man for wounding me the same as a young man for striking me? Maybe there were two deaths there. Maybe he killed two people instead of one. Maybe it's just he's just he's just rejoicing in what he did. He's just boasting. There's this sense of pride in his violence. And of course, this is you know indicative of the sort of evil you see in chapter 6 when God brought the flood into the world. People just boasting in their, their horrific actions. So that's where, that's where it came from. But when you see it, it's not what God designed at the beginning, according to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that's the conclusion. So anything irregular about marriage that doesn't fit the biblical norm, um, again, it, it's, it's not like you don't say it, it doesn't exist in the world. Like there are people that say, well, look, we have to trace your marriage back to your first person you married, even though you had six wives since and, they, and that, the, that wife's gone on married to somebody else yet in, in heaven you're only married to that first woman no that's I mean heaven I think acknowledges the things that happened in this world as a result of sin and we really have to as Christians you know stuff we did in unbelief we come to the place as Christians where we have to just recognize things we live in a disordered world we live in a world where things are not what they should have been and they, but yet they are what they are so let's address what they are and go from there is uh, pretty much how I, I, I look at things so anyway, uh, that doesn't answer all the problems we have in the fallen world but it helps at least to give some sense of how, how you address these evils that exist not ignoring them not saying they don't exist not saying there's some ideal world somewhere where things are different, no, no they are what they are and we just see it for what they are and we move on let's go back to Romans 7 and and the point of all this is that this liberation we have from the law through through the death of Jesus whereby we come to be joined to him we're united to him again it's the language of union the two shall be made one flesh we are made one spirit with Christ we're joined to Christ we're made one with Christ one with the body of Christ again that language of body of Christ is used with reference to the church Christ says it's my body these people that I've redeemed, these people that I've brought to myself, these people that have been baptized into my death, uh, are, are mine. They belong to me. They're united to me. And being united to Christ, you're united to a husband who helps. And a husband who enables us to bring forth fruit unto God. And yes, yeah, so I remember back in this, in the, when he used the illustration of slavery, what fruit did you have and the things of which you're now ashamed? You had no fruit at all. But now be made freed from sin, become slaves to God, you have your fruit unto sanctification and the end of eternal life. Well, this fruit unto sanctification arises out of being joined to Jesus as our husband. Being joined to Jesus in this marital union where we are the bride of Christ, where we are the body bride of Jesus. And hence we are able to bear fruit unto God. See it in verse 6, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in a new way. A new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, the written code could only prescribe. It could only say, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's like playing Simon Says. (laughs) So the Lord just says, "Do, do, do this, do this, do this, do this. Now, Simon says usually you can do what the person's telling you to do, but you can't always do the things that the law says and the law doesn't help you. The Lord just prescribes for you. But now we have something new. We have Jesus, our, 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 our bridegroom, our heavenly bridegroom. And we have his Holy Spirit that he's given to us. We are those who possess the Spirit of God. So we serve God in a new way. The way of spirit empowerment. Not in the old way of the written code, which gave us no power. There's no power empowerment in a written code. And Paul says, what, what shall we say then? Shall we say that the law is sin? He says, again, by no means. He says, yet I had, if it not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Oh, we got five minutes left. I don't know how much I'm going to be able to cover this ground in any degree of fullness. Um, but Paul does say, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, let me ask you this. Paul was a Jew, born, raised, educated, trained. Did he know the law said, thou shalt not covet? How come he never took it to heart? Evidently, he didn't take it to heart. What made him take it to heart? What made suddenly this law that says, thou shalt not covet, Um come alive to him. He says in verse 8, Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So, Paul says, I once was alive. I was once doing quite well. I once thought myself to be right on track. Something happened. Something happened to kill me, to just take away all of my hopes, to take away all of my sense that I was right with the world and the world was right with me. Well, what was it that brought Paul to that new way of understanding himself? What brought him to this new way of understanding the law? What brought the commandment, thou shalt not covet, to come alive and, and kill him? And that's, that's, the, that's the language that he uses. That's the way he's illustrating what happened in his life. How do we put that all together? What was the event in Paul's life that was so earth-shattering and life-changing that would have produced something of this remarkable change he's talking about? He just... Huh?
1: Sorry? stoning
0: of Stephen. Uh, well, he thought he was serving God, stoning Stephen. I don't think it was, I don't think it was the stoning of Stephen that was life changing and earth shattering. What? And the Damascus Road. Absolutely, the Damascus Road. Who are you, Lord? He heard the voice of God. Remember, the, command, the Ten Commandments were given with an audible voice from heaven, there was a voice of God. that was well known from the Old Testament the voice of God now how many people experience the voice of God not many but man when you experience it it's no denying it what do you do with it again there were some people in the gospels that said it thundered (laughs) but Paul knew someone's talking to him someone's saying to him Saul, Saul my name just like God said Abraham, Abraham someone's saying Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me just my church but me and his answer is who are you Lord this is obviously the Lord this is obviously the God of Israel who are you I am Jesus whom you are persecuting what do you think that did to Paul again remember his biography He's this up-and-coming rabbi in Judaism. He's the new star. He's the new Anthony Volpe. (laughs) That's a baseball face, folks. The new Yankee shortstop, or the new Beatty of the Mets. The new guy that come up from the minor leagues and hitting the cover off the ball. He's the new star. Well, that was Paul in the firmament of the Jewish universe. He was the up-and-coming rabbi. And he loved being the up-and-coming rabbi. He was ahead of many of his contemporaries, he says, in the Jews' religion. He was the fast-rising powerhouse among Judaism. And he's gotten his creds, how? Persecuting the church. And now the Lord of the church meets him and says... Paul, you're persecuting the God of Israel. You think you're serving the God of Israel. And all of a sudden, Paul comes to the realization, what a hard-hearted, covetous sinner I am, seeking my own glory, rather than the glory that comes from the only God. Seeking my own advancement in the Jews' religion at the expense of Stephen's life. At the expense of the life of many other Christians, whom he put to death or he imprisoned. Paul comes to see something of the enormity of his sins and his transgressions that he never saw before. What a wicked person he was to be pursuing his own things rather than the things of God. He thought he was serving God. He thought he was serving Israel's God. He thought to do many of these things for the sake of his religion. And he was engaging in a religious zeal that was persecuting the God of heaven and earth and his people. I think Paul's talking about his conversion on the road to Damascus. I think Paul is is trying to tell us what a a covetous sinner he saw himself to be. But if it wasn't for this covetous heart, he wouldn't have had a closed mind. And he wouldn't have had a a deep abiding prejudice against the claims of the Son of God. He sought the glory that belonged to... uh, the the glory of men more than the glory of God. And he wasn't even aware of it. He was so... Covetous for his own advancement his own rising trajectory in the Jews religion that he was making strides and progress and he didn't see what a wretched pursuit of self-interest and self-will and self-pleasing this was that had brought him to persecute the God of Israel in his people anyway that's I think that's what's going on but we don't have time to open it up further Um, I appreciate your patience this morning. Let's pray together, and God willing, we'll resume this next week. Father, we're thankful we can meet together, we can talk about these matters of biblical truth, and Lord, we live in a world in which we just need our minds scrubbed of so much that we've been taught, so much that we just have taken for granted. Now, we need to really wrestle with the text of your word to, to get a real sense of what you intend this world to be, what you intend our lives to be what you intend our marriages to be, what you intend our walk before you to be. That we're not to be those who are seeking help in anything else than in Jesus, because he is the one who died for us. He's the one who rose for us. He's the one who reigns for us. He's the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. So give us, we pray, to be a people that are zealous for the gospel, zealous for our Lord Jesus, and seek to honor him and serve him in all that we are and do. We ask you to hear our prayers. Bless us as we greet one another this morning. Bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We'd ask in Jesus' name, amen.